You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm joined by Andrea Goulet, a programmer at CorgiBytes and co-author of the book, Empathy-Driven Software Development from Pearson Publications. We talk about some of the surprising interactions between technology and empathy, including how empathy for other programmers can lead to not only better interactions with other programmers, but even better understanding of the technology itself. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Inc. No Red Inc. makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredinc.com jobs. And now, technical empathy. Andrea, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. So by sheer coincidence, we, we had just in an earlier episode of the podcast, um, we had on Johanathan Charvit, and he was talking about his book, Data-Oriented Programming. And he told me the story where when he was writing the book, he structured it as a dialogue between a, a Java programmer and a Clojure programmer. And of course, he's writing both sides, but he's sort of coming from the Clojure background. And the, the point was to like sort of teach the Java programmer about these techniques. And he said something really interesting, which is that by the end of writing the book, because he'd spent so much time writing from the Java programmer's perspective, he actually felt a lot closer to them than he did at the beginning of writing the book. And in fact, it also revealed to him some sort of things that he'd been missing, even on a technical level, about Java, perhaps because you know his mindset wasn't really open to that. But after doing all this time, and he didn't use the word empathy to describe this, but this seemed like a really interesting case to me of someone using empathy to actually not just discover something about people, but even about technology. Yeah. Which I, I'm curious... Like I know, so I know you've spent a lot of time, you know, teaching people about empathy and like how to like develop it as a skill. Is that something you've seen, like, um, in terms of like people not just expanding their ability to work with people, but uh, even in terms of like expanding their technical horizons with software as a result of being intentional about empathy? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's my kind of area of specialty. There's a lot of people who are, you know, empathy kind of feels like a buzzword, but for me. <laughs> I really like looking at empathy in the context of how it impacts software and the social systems that support software development. And I think you're absolutely right because empathy, what the research is showing us is that it's much more of a motivation and a skill than it is a like genetic predisposition. It's not like adult height where you're born with like a level of empathy and then it's, no. It, it really relies on context and it relies on whether or not we are motivated to do that. So for this particular person, he was motivated to write a book and so there was that emphasis in learning. And then through that, you do learn. And I think that's really what empathy is about. It's it's about taking moments and identifying the, the moments where we can have an impact. And so we think about this a lot of times. The story I sometimes give is that when I first came to programming, and even before, my background is in marketing, and I worked as a, as a content writer for a long time. And so alt tags were a thing, right? I needed to fill out alt tags. Right. For accessibility and yeah. Yeah. But and like I kind of had a general awareness of, yeah, alt tags are useful. But this the organization that I was working with, they didn't really put a priority on it. I didn't know anybody who really used them. I knew that they were kind of generally useful for screen readers, you know, and often I was working in an environment where there was just a lot of time pressure. And so I had to like get things out really, really fast. So Taking a moment to like take a bee and like really think through something 
you know, I didn't have the motivation to do that. All of that changed when my friend Taylor was in a car accident and he lost his vision. And he is a web developer and he started describing to me because he had the same thing. He was like, yeah, I kind of like leave him blank. He was like, but now that he's blind, he's like, oh my gosh, I had no idea (laughs) how important these are. And so as he was describing his experience to me, I have the same moment of activity, but it's a decision point. How, you know, do I take an extra 20 seconds to think about this picture and like how to describe it or do I just kind of move on? And because I have an emotional connection to Taylor and I care about him and I have compassion towards him, I am therefore motivated to engage with empathy. Whereas before, I, there was a disincentive. So when we think about empathy, we need to think about it a little bit more systemically. And then as we start to look at all of the different places where we are writing documentation or we're writing a function and how, like what variable names do we use and things like that? How do I uh, structure my code so that it's easy to read? Or do I just kind of like not put any spaces in there because the computer doesn't need it? You know, those kinds of decisions are all rooted in empathy. And the act of learning and figuring out not just somebody else's perspective, but also your own, it's that internal process that I think is really magical because then we can take advantage of marginal gains. Because imagine a team of 20 developers and all of them are skipping out on all of these things. And, but then by focusing on motivation through empathy, They're motivated to write better commit messages. They're motivated to actually provide a little bit more thoughtful analysis in their code reviews, and then also having the skill to actually implement that effectively. So that's where I love geeking out. And I have to say, I haven't really coded in Elm much, but I was so impressed when I went and looked at the documentation and the error messages and like... <laughs> yeah, it's, this is it's, amazing. This is where it should go. <laughs> it's it's really great. Yeah, I I agree. You said something really interesting, which is the motivation piece. I think is something that's often glossed over because in some cases, I think about like product design, and there's a lot of like you know user personas and thinking about okay, who are the different types of people who will use this product, and there's a lot of thinking about like okay, what, what's different about them? And like, this person's going to have these needs and this person's going to have these needs. And how do we build something that's useful to all of them and that they'll all find you know pleasant to use? But there's less of that sort of mindset when you're thinking about writing code for other people who are writing code. And I think the motivation piece kind of has something to do with that in the sense that like, if I'm a product designer, it's like, that's part of my job description is to figure out like, what do the users want? But when I'm a programmer, it's like, well, my job is to make the software run. And unless you decide to like make the conscious choice to put that in scope of like, I'm, I'm trying to not just make the program run, but also to make the code artifact itself usable for other programmers, which in turn means thinking about things like who are the different types of programmers who are going to interact with this. It might be a brand new hire who's fresh out of a boot camp and is is not very experienced. And it also might be an expert who like knows all the ins and outs and wants, you know, flexibility and power and things like that. And taking all of those different 
so to speak, like user personas <laughs> into account is not a default. It's it's like something you, it's a choice you have to make. Yeah. And it's a practice. Yeah. Right. So empathy is very similar to breathing. There's an automatic response. Like we, we kind of will walk by somebody and kind of feel a pang, right? That's, that's normal, but it's also a deliberate Thing. Now I'm thinking about my breathing right now. Yeah, yeah. So it's like <laughs> you, you can spend that. the whole day not thinking about your respiratory system and just like, but then you can also spend an entire day at a meditation retreat where like you're consciously paying attention. And so empathy is the same way. And so just learning to pay attention, learning to understand what empathy is on a technical level, mm-hmm. and then learning how to apply it effectively. I think it's it's very similar to acquiring any other skill. So one of the techniques that I know, uh, Evan Chaplicki, who created Elm, I've seen him use this technique a number of times. And it's, it's weird that I, I'm surprised that I haven't seen it used in more places. But a common thing that he'll do is he'll make two different versions of an API and actually put them with different module names. And one of them is called, like, for example, I don't know, like, uh, HTTP, and the other one will be like HTTP.lowlevel. And he explicitly separates those two. And the idea is normally you probably just want the HTTP thing. But if you're finding that you have some advanced use case and it's not quite flexible enough for what you want, there's a separate low-level API that gives you more power, but also it's sort of less ergonomic. And what I like about having that explicit separation is that often there are even just like two different sort of user personas. Like a lot of people are going to be like, okay, I'm a beginner. I don't necessarily want to you know, run into this function that's got, you know, a bunch of different arguments and like a mile long piece of documentation. It's like, am I supposed to use this? I don't know. Like, do I need this? And, and just having it in a separate module that's labeled, like, you know, this is the advanced stuff. You know, when you're starting out, you're like, do I need the advanced stuff? Probably not yet. (laughs) So there's, there's an element of like, putting yourself in the shoes of like, what's a beginner one? And what is the, like the advanced person, you know, if I'm coming in and saying, I want to do something that's like really off the beaten path and really unusual, I need a lot of control. To me, the like low level or advanced version appeals to me that like catches my eye. I'm like, Ooh, that's, that's probably got what I want in there. Let me, let me go jump straight into that. I want to read this super long documentation about, you know, this really more powerful version, but as a beginner, I probably want the opposite. And so why not put those in two separate places instead of jamming them both together in, into one giant module that's just, you know, good luck, beginner. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that really comes down to goals, right? Because really that's that's what, like, what are we motivated to achieve, right? Like, what's the thing that we're working towards? And then that can help us as well. So different languages have different goals, right? I don't know too much about Elm, but I can see that like usability and like the the experience of it. I'm like, I want to go code some stuff in Elm now because it's like the first functional program that I'm like, I can actually wrap my brain around this. And I think that to me, as somebody who was kind of looking through things, I was like, this is very intentional. Oh, ve- this, very intentional. This yeah. is part of the like goal, high level goal of the language. Whereas other languages is just like, eh, you know, figure it out. <laughs> there are other goals. So then it makes it kind of easier to figure out in which direction should I go. So, but that can be really hard because it's like kind of like, what is empathy? That's one of the questions I get asked a lot. Sure. And, and like, what's the difference between empathy and sympathy is another one I'm yeah, guessing is pretty common. Yeah. Yeah. So, so empathy is, 
is a little bit more complex than sympathy. So kind of the core difference is that sympathy is feeling for someone and empathy is feeling with someone. So, and neither one is better than the other. I think that's an important point to make is that we are in a society right now where it's like, it's almost being hailed as like, you have to be this perfect ideal person at all times. And if you're not, then you suck. (laughs) And I, I struggle with that because I remember when I first came to coding, I felt that pressure because there was this idea of clean code and refactoring and this like, if you ever write something that isn't easy to read, then you're a horrible developer. Oh, no. Yeah. Right? And like, that was how I internalized it. And so I, I was less motivated. I was like really self-conscious and I didn't try as many things because I didn't want to be called out for making a mistake. And so I'm seeing that kind of same thing where... I think it's really great that we're recognizing that empathy is important. And at the same time, I think we just need to get clear on like what empathy is. And so the definition, I'll pull up my, my little manuscript from my book, the definition that I use to describe it, and it's, it's long, well, and I'll describe why it's long first. <laughs> and that's because dictionary definitions tend to be wrong. <laughs> so... <laughs> And I frame this in terms of colloquial understanding and technical understanding. So when I first learned how to code, I used the terms programming and coding interchangeably. And when I was first learning HTML, CSS, I went to somebody and I was like, I'm really getting the hang of this programming thing. And they were like, you're not programming. You're not initiating a state change. So you're not programming, you're coding though. I was like, oh. And so that was like, he was accurate. And at the same time, I didn't have that level of nuance where I really could incorporate that. I actually had not heard that distinction made before. That's really? Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but but it's true. Like if you dive in, it's like, oh, okay, that's that's something. And so the same thing happens with empathy. So the the kind of colloquial definition is it's walking in someone else's shoes, right? And you know that's kind of what we think. It and even in the point. So if we look at the Cambridge Dictionary. Their definition is the ability to share someone else's feelings or experiences by imagining what it would be like to be in that person's situation. Okay. And that's not empathy. (laughs) (laughs) That's called projection. And so if you're taking your experience and inserting it using your imagination into another person's situation, that's actually incredibly problematic. It causes bias and prejudice and (laughs) it can entrench us versus them thinking. So that's an example of like the coding programming thing. Like it's a good place to start, but we need to dive much deeper into the details So the way that I describe empathy is compassion-motivated, multidimensional, and individualized system of skills and abilities, which helps you accurately understand the emotional and mental states of yourself and others, communicate effectively, and act in a way that helps more and harms less. So that's talking about kind of like what it is, right? Why we use it, and then the outcomes that we want as well. So like... I don't know. Maybe it's it's almost like inputs, algorithms, and outputs a little bit. Okay, so, so that's why it's a little complex and longer. It's a lot more like prescriptive and like like how it should be used, and not just like how to tell if something is or isn't empathy. Yeah, well, and I think some of it is that like it it is just really complex, and so if you're taking something that's just incredibly. Like I had someone tell me like what what prompted me to kind of look at this whole thing was it was like empathy is not that hard. Just go look it up in a dictionary. And I was like, 
oh, actually, but, <laughs> right? And I think we can do this with any domain. Like in, like you just said, you've got the high level like HTTP, but then you've got the lower level of, you know, okay, when am I going to need to apply this? As an aside, I, I found that's like a generalized pattern of like whenever someone says X is easy or X is really simple, just, and then like, they, you know, and then they say that to somebody who's like, spent a lot of time studying that thing generally speaking the expert is like actually <laughs> turns out if it, there's there's a lot more to it that that's an oversimplification yeah and i think what what prompted me was like why do you think that like so and then is it really that way so yeah and i think like empathy then shows up in all of these little discrete places I'm curious if you would consider this to be an example of empathy based on your definition. So something I, I discovered recently, and I know the Elm compiler has done this for a long time, but I didn't actually, and actually I should ask Evan this, um, if it's, if this is motor, like where the directionality is, but I don't know of any other compiler that's used in like sort of a professional setting that does this, but the Elm compiler uses first person pronouns. Like it'll say like, Hey, I need you to do this. Or like, Hey, I didn't understand that. I didn't know this, but there's apparently research about that being basically better. Felina Hermans uh, uh, tweeted a link to, to a study about this where they compared, it was specifically like compiler error messages and it was for young kids in particular. And Elm has been used by young kids, like, you know, grade school kids in at, uh, McMaster University in Canada. Um, but basically it, this was a, um, an, an, a study that was done about if you use like first person pronouns and talk like I am the compiler, hi, hello, um, I, I I want to tell you something about you know what I need um, or, or you know what I was confused by, as opposed to an impersonal that's that doesn't personify in anything. It just says like this was an error, and the kids actually like measurably did better and like like re reacted faster and like were able to respond to the error message and, and make their corrections better when it used the first person pronoun and said I have this and that, and I wonder if that's because of empathy, like the kids are sort of thinking, oh, computer needs this, you know, I, I can help them. Or is that is that something other than empathy? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think it's easier to, there's there's a lot of research into, like there's a, like, especially in terms of artificial intelligence and machine learning and like, how does empathy play out there? And there's even some researchers who believe that they've cracked artificial empathy and a lot of it is around like the interactions that are presented, right? And you see this a lot too in like healthcare settings where being able to like trust a machine that is going to, you know, provide you care, right? Moving things in that per first person, it like the goal of language. And that's why I put communication so important in there because to your point, it's, it's about fostering that connection. So, and it goes both ways. So yes, the children are able to learn more because they're engaging that kind of emotional aspect. It's not just super abstract and what am I talking to, but also like the conscious choice to write the code that way so that it can be more interactive and so that somebody can use it. Like, like both of those are acts of empathy. Yeah. Cool. All right. That, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. I mean, I hadn't, when I first heard about that, my immediate takeaway was like, oh, this is like a thing that more compilers should be doing, <laughs> but not, yeah, I wasn't thinking about it in that axis. You mentioned trust. So trust is, uh, in my mind, 
related to obviously not the same thing as empathy, but but there does seem to be a connection there. And I've been thinking about trust in a couple of different contexts recently. So one is there's this whole movement to try and design. I've heard people use the term trustless systems where it's like, oh, you don't need to trust either party and it'll still work. But that really kind of is, in my mind, a subset of like a broader domain of like security conscious programming where it's like, well, even if someone acts in a bad way, you know, you don't need to worry because it's it's designed to be resilient to that. Yeah. And I'm struck by this phrase that I've used, not in the context of, of technology, but in the, just in the context of organizations, which is trust is efficient. Like if you're able to trust somebody else, you can just work more effectively with them because you don't need to be on your guard. You don't need to put safeguards in place and defenses in place. You can just say, no, let's just, let's just hash it out, you know? And that also is true of like financial institutions, like a, a common criticism, which I think is makes a lot of sense of uh, a lot of like decentralized types of like financial ideas is that it's just more efficient if you end up trusting a central entity. If you don't want to trust a central entity, okay, fair enough. But like if you're willing to, a lot of stuff gets a lot simpler and a lot more efficient. And the same thing I think is true of organizations. Like you can imagine having to work at a place and there are definitely organizations like this where you should not trust your coworkers not to commit malicious code. If you're in that kind of organization, everything's going to take longer. You have to put in all these safeguards. You have to like do code review more thoroughly and have more layers to the process. Whereas if you are able to trust your coworkers and be like, yeah, I don't think they're doing malicious stuff. So when I'm code reviewing, I don't need to look, are they trying to sneak exploits in? I can just look at like the style <laughs> and like, mm -hmm. you know, is it well tested and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So my background is in helping to modernize legacy systems. Like that's been where uh, I've spent the majority of my time. And there are some fascinating things that you just mentioned. So when it comes to legacy systems, there's a great book by Michael Feathers called Working Effectively with Legacy Code. And the way that he defines legacy code in that book, which is you know, over 10 years old now, is code without tests. And that's something that a lot of people have kind of latched onto, which I think is really good. We want tests, right? And I think it's a little incomplete, though. So the way I define legacy code is code without trust. Because for exactly the things that you mentioned, like if we don't trust our code workers, things are going to take longer. If we don't trust the variable names, like if we don't trust the documentation, like if we don't trust that the code's going to do what it says it's going to do, if we don't trust that the deployment instructions that we're looking at actually like are going to work, yeah, it's going to take longer. And so, you know, I think trust definitely plays a big part of it. And I think that's the thing that we want to kind of look at and measure in terms of for exactly the reason that you were talking about is how how efficient is the system. So the so I'm working on a book called Empathy Driven Software Development that like takes a lot of these ideas and puts them in the context of software metaphors and like how can we actually apply it. And so the way that I define empathy driven development is that it's a human centered approach to building software that uses continuous communication to generate trust and resilience. And so that's where that empathy piece comes in is that when you engage with empathy, you are building trust, right? It is an opportunity to build trust. And there are times when you don't want to, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> because if you trust somebody too much, like you can be taken advantage of, you can be abused, right? You can be manipulated. So it's, it's about a balance. It's not about like completely opening things up. But I like your observation about kind of the trustless things. And 
I think it really is more towards resilience. And I think this is kind of a thing in software that I've noticed in general, like is that the metaphors that we use tend to be more of the negative. And the the former copywriter in me is like, it's more powerful if we frame it in a positive way. So like instead of talking about technical debt, which is like, oh, debt is bad. And then there's actually problems if you talk to investors because to them, debt is leverage, debt is good. (laughs) But instead, if we're talking about like code health, right? Health is important. And then what are we, our health goals and like, what does health look like? Then we can start having more productive conversations. I think technical debt is still a useful metaphor, but it can break down. Instead of the double negative of let's reduce debt, you can have a double positive of like, let's increase health. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And so I see, I see the same thing in the trust less, but really what we're looking for is resilient systems that have redundancy and are, you know, resilient and, you know, are able to withstand chaos and dynamic things that we can't expect. Right. That's certainly what I'm more interested in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm interested in also like there, there's definitely aspects, you know, within the realm of software, but not in the technical aspect of it where empathy plays a big role. And a, a lot of people think about that in terms of like within an organization and like how it's, at, you know, uh, like some of the things we talked about previously, like, you know, the users of your software and then also like, you know, collaborating with your teammates. But one, one, one of my sort of like, I don't know, pet issues that I, I think a lot about is the relationship between users of open source software and especially volunteers making that open source software in their spare time. I actually think like in my mind, it's a little bit different if like a company is paying you to do and it's your job. But like, I always sort of bristle when I see someone open an issue on like, clearly someone did this project in their spare time and just said, Hey, I'm just going to put it out there so anyone can use it and put a permissive license on it. So you can feel free to enjoy this thing. And somebody writes an issue that reading it, it makes me feel they're treating it like it's a product and they paid money for it and they're getting a, they they had a frustrating experience and they're mad about it. And they're expressing that anger to the person who just did this on their weekend and gave it away for free. And I've always thought of that as, as a lack of empathy. Um, and, and I find it frustrating because I guess (laughs) to go back to your example with Taylor, because I've, I've been on the receiving end of that, of, you know, I, I, I didn't, set out to build uh you know a product i just did something in my free time and i thought hey this might be useful to some people let me just put it out on the internet and then i felt punished for that when somebody you know comes at you with like these sort of aggressive <laughs> let's charitably call them bug reports but i i wonder about sort of is there a way that we can culturally try to shift that because it's one thing to identify you know like, it sounds like your clients are sort of motivated to be like, hey, we we, we are going to, you know, we, we are looking to improve empathy in our organization. But probably somebody on the internet, I, I would assume, is not necessarily going out and seeking that. So I wonder how, if, if there is a way to affect a cultural change around that. Like, I would love to get to a world where, I don't know if we need to go this far, but like a, a personal habit that I try to do is the first time I'm opening an issue on a repo that I haven't ever filed a bug against no matter what i always try to start off with the word thanks or like thank you and just starting with being like hey i just want to acknowledge like i appreciate what you're doing here and like anyway here's my bug report and it's not just because separately i think it's a it's a nice thing to thank people and and i do appreciate their software obviously i'm using it but even separate from that there's also just an element of like it's hard to write an angry snarky bug report after you started off with thanks 
And so I, I don't, I'm not saying that I think everyone should do that, but I wish that somehow we could get to a point where that was a lot closer to the cultural norm than the status quo, where there's a lot of like, you know, Hey idiot, you made this dumb mistake, jerk fix my thing. And I think that we can go back and look at the history of how we got here as a way to move forward. And when we do that, it's really fascinating. So there was a study in the 1960s of satisfied software developers. They call them programmers at the time, right? Uh Uh-huh. Coders. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And one of the most important attributes of a satisfied software developer was that they don't like people. Wow. Really? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so that got baked in. Those findings actually got baked into the IBM programmer aptitude test, which until (laughs) the mid 90s was the de facto way to get into software development. Oh, wow. So the less you like people, the higher you score on this test. (laughs) Yeah. So that's what it's, it it was a timed test. The only thing, like if you go back and read through like Walter McNamara, who like was putting the test, he was like, yeah, we thought about verbal skills and, you know, but then we decided, you know, the only thing we really need to measure is logical reasoning. And even through like 1989, you have Edgar Dykstra, and they were talking about how do we put together curriculums for, you know, if, if software is becoming, is it engineering? Is it a science? Is it this? Like there was this, how do we teach it? And so you have Dykstra, who's just like, super passionate about the only thing that really matters is being able to create a formal proof mathematically. And that's what defines this. And other people are like, no, you kind of need to like work with business owners and like, who's going to give you those requirements? Like you, there is this sense of like, I need to understand. So this is, this goes back a long way, but pretty much we just had selection bias that then got incorporated to an expert bias, right, which then got scaled up to media. So when we see war games and like we still see it, and like the Big Bang Theory and, you know, all of these different places that signaled to us, this is what a software developer looks like and acts like and sounds like and talks like, you know. And then on the empathy side, we had something similar too, right? We've had researchers where it's like their methodology is really being questioned about you know, who has empathy and who doesn't. I think this has impacted the autism community probably more than others where like I'll go around and talk to different places and say, oh, I'm writing a book about empathy in the context of software developer. And people who study empathy for a living have flat out told me, how can you do that? Doesn't everybody in software have autism and how can they have empathy? Like these are, these are really awful judgments and stereotypes that are not rooted. And so one thing that's come out of that is the double empathy. We need to have empathy for everyone. So so what I'm writing about is not just for, oh, you think you have a deficit. It's, oh, you think you're an empath? You probably actually need this book more because I was operating in that space where I had this certainty. And so if we're operating on empathy from that colloquial understanding of, I know what it's like to be in your shoes and I feel confident because everybody's told me I'm good at this. But when we actually look at the research, being able to detect accurately, like what somebody is sensing from like facial expressions and different, you know, things like that, the best that we get is about 35%. Wow. And that's like married couples who have been with each other for a really, really long time. So if I'm just meeting someone, it's like no one really is good at this. And so that can kind of level the playing field. And it's more about a skill. And so 
you know, and, and it comes down to motivation. So that's where it's like gender has kind of like empathy do- isn't related to gender, except that women have culturally been more motivated to have empathy skills than men. But there's a fascinating study that when you start paying men to be empathetic, <laughs> then all of a sudden it's like everything gets to baseline. So it it really has to do with motivation. So we have been operating for 70 years where empathy has been seen as not just not important, but it's been seen as a liability. If you have empathy, you don't belong here. Really? Mm-hmm. And that was that. actually part of the finding was like, if, you, if you've if you ever had a background in business or with people, you shouldn't become a software developer. Yeah. This, this reminds me of like an experience that I had, but really didn't introspect on much until much later in life. But when I was a young kid, like in elementary school, I got picked on a lot. I was a big nerd. And like, you know, I largely viewed it as like, there's my small group of friends and then everybody else is like a danger. And I have to like, you know, protect myself against them. And at some point in in about fifth grade, I got sort of sick of this. And I was like, I just want to learn how to sort of pass for being a like normal person and like not a, a big nerd so that people will just stop picking on me. And so I started consciously like observing my classmates and like interactions that they had. And if someone like one of the early rules that I learned is like, if someone pokes fun at you or like makes a joke about you don't react honestly if you feel hurt but rather just brush it off and, and like laugh with them and be like oh yeah I, i'm actually part of this joke you know stuff like that is these tactics that i i, I view it as like you know i don't know <laughs> emotional health survival tactics if you will yeah but what surprised me was that i guess similar to you know the the java enclosure example at the beginning was that by the end of like sort of this process where i, I felt like okay i can fit in now I didn't actually view myself as like, oh, I've successfully tricked these people into like, you know, thinking that I'm not a nerd. It's more just like, oh, no, I actually just I see why people interact in this way and I actually like it better. And I think it's like, you know, it's it like it has merit on its own. It's not just, you know, something that's like wrong that I need to uh, emulate in order to survive. Mm-hmm. To survive the playground, right? <laughs> All the stakes seemed way higher back then. But thinking about this, you know, from the framing of like empathy is not just putting yourself in someone else's shoes. There's a lot more to it than that. It's It kind of becomes easier to see why that might be a little bit more transformative than the like oversimplified, you know, definition would suggest. It's like just putting yourself in someone else's shoes does not lead you, I think, generally speaking, to sort of changing how you actually view that thing on a fundamental level where you're actually like, you know what, actually, like, I'm more comfortable in in these shoes than I was in my previous set of shoes. And I can think of a lot of examples of cases where I have, in retrospect, felt sort of almost willfully ignorant of certain parts of software and like uh, certain technical things, just because I had this sense of tribalism. I'm thinking here of static and dynamic typing, but there's a lot, there's a lot of examples, you know, along those lines where it's like, it's not just about what does this tool do for me, but it's about what are the communities around this tool and which community to identify with. And then therefore, if I'm in this community, that means I can't be or shouldn't be a part of these other communities and therefore should not like those tools. And all of these things seem messier than they need to be. And the root part of the reason for that has something to do with, and, and maybe it is this, I don't know, something to do with this IBM manual or whatever, <laughs> but like, but it has something to do with this, this feeling of like, oh, emotions shouldn't matter. Like I shouldn't be thinking about those things. And so if I don't like this technology, it must be because of its technical merits and not because subconsciously I'm like identifying with a different tribe. Yeah. 
No, I mean, you're very insightful because (laughs) I would agree. And having looked at all the research, I think you're on point because empathy actually can backfire. So empathy can be a reason that we entrench ourselves in an in-group because we identify with the people who are like us. And then we say, oh, those people over there. And whether or not that's a different community or, you know, somebody who comes from a different background or a different race or ethnicity or different life experience or are in a different department. So like we see this with like, oh, the business, right? That's actually humanizing linguistic practice Yeah, where you're labeling, right? And you're not saying, oh, you know, Felicia over in, you know, accounting, like what does she need? Right. If I fill out my timesheets correctly, then that saves her three hours of work because she doesn't have to track everybody down. Right. And so it's it's things like that where I think empathy can transform things from a check the box activity of like, oh, I hate filling out my timesheets to like who is actually going to read this. So one of the practices I suggest is like if you ever are just going about your day and going, who even cares about this? Like with me and with the alt tags, just take a moment and pause and go and reframing it and saying, okay, who does care about this? What are their needs? And if I don't know, how can I learn? And I think then also looking at your environment, because if you're in an environment where it's like you don't have the time to do that or that's not valued, you know, that's another problem too. So it is very, very layered in terms of what empathy is comprised of and like how to execute it effectively. Because I think that's one of the big things too. It's like, this is super complex. How can I like actually operationalize it so that I can do this on a regular basis? And that's where I get really excited is like actually bringing this into action. There's a empathy researcher who's been looking at the functional architecture of empathy. So like how does empathy actually like exist in our brains and like what are the different components of it? There's four. It started with two, then it was three. Now it's kind of four. And so the first is emotional empathy. So it's that feeling synchronization. So if you've ever seen a movie and kind of got swept up with the characters and it's like you're feeling sad because they're feeling sad, that's emotional empathy. You also have empathic concern, which sometimes is called sympathy. Sometimes it's called compassion. This is a <laughs> literature where it's just like, eh, naming is hard. Um, and so, but that is like, do I care about another person, right? And if it's the business, whatever, what do they care? They're just, you know, they don't care about me. I don't care about them. But right. it's like, on the no. other side of the fence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But no, like that's my friend and I care about them. What can I do? That's an important aspect. You have cognitive empathy, which is the perspective taking, right? It's the mentalizing. It's the consideration. It's, it's paying attention. Like what is somebody going to need? And then there's also emotional regulation, because if our emotions are controlling us more than we're controlling our emotions, then we can't really listen to somebody else's perspective. So all four of these kind of work together. And so the way that I suggest is kind of putting it into a little bit of an algorithm, right? And this has worked for me and it's worked for my team where you start with just recognizing like is like is something like, would empathy be useful here? Like kind of paying attention to those little opportunities. And, you know, the more you learn how to pay attention, the more sensitive you become. And so you find more and more opportunities to do this throughout the day. And then kind of anchoring yourself. So the the most important aspect of that that kind of drives all the motivation is the care. So, you know, the empathic concern. So I the algorithm that I kind of think through is care, calm, 
consider connect, right? So care is that empathic concern, like, okay, am I dehumanizing? Do, am I sending compassion? Like, do I recognize them as a human being? Do I like want to alleviate suffering? Like, that's the that's the first part. Next is calm. Like, are my emotions getting in the way, right? And and there is no bad emotion, right? But you can be dysregulated. And then it's like, if you try to engage in an empathic exchange, you're actually going to be operating more out of defensiveness than you are like actually working towards a solution. Then looking at consideration. So these are things like, okay, are there any ethical implications here? Because they all interrelate to each other too. So for example, I'm somebody who naturally just like feels the compassion. I like tend to have really porous boundaries and like I'll just really over-identify with people's situations. And so there's a connection that if you do that too much, then you can have moral and ethical implications because you get so drawn in by one person's story that you're not thinking about how decisions impact a broader group. And so you can actually cause more harm by over-identifying. So then, you know, care, calm, consider, and then you've got that connection. So it's that like heartfelt. And then how do I communicate? Sometimes that's just sitting with someone who's grieving and just being there and being a shoulder to cry on and not saying anything. Other times it's writing really nice compilers, right? <laughs> so, and, and I think of it too, like back to compilers, like Grace Hopper, like the reason that she wrote a compiler in the first place was to help humans, right? Like that in itself is an act of empathy. And so looking for all of these different places and then thinking about how can it benefit me? Where do I need to, you know, bring more? Where do I need to bring less? And looking at it systemically, very similar to how you look at a software system and then bringing in some of the metaphors that you already know, like, okay, here's an algorithm, like thinking about things algorithmically. And it's, it's way more complex than that. But an algorithm is an abstraction that just kind of helps us understand things a little bit. So, yeah. One area that comes to mind as you're talking about, like, you know, putting these things into practice and, and sort of like seeing, you know, results come out of them is this term DevOps. So when I think about like, where did the DevOps movement come from? The idea of like, you should be responsible for not just writing the software, but also how it's deployed, how the infrastructure is managed and all these things. One of the things that I've seen as like a, a symptom that leads to a desire for something like that is the feeling of, okay, if you have specialists, you have like infrastructure specialists and they spend most of their time or maybe all their time working on the infrastructure. And then you have application development specialists who are spending most if not all their time on that and very little time on infrastructure and deploys, you can very easily get this sort of fence mentality where it's like, well, I'm just going to write my code in a way that has no instrumentation whatsoever and there's going to be no observability or anything like that. We're just going to throw it over the wall and the infrastructure people can just deal with it. Mm -hmm. And that's not good. It's it, it creates all sorts of problems and leads to, you know, among other things, inefficiencies where like, you know, it's a lot harder for the infrastructure to solve problems than if the application developers were keeping those considerations in mind. On the flip side, so so it, there's like one way you could look at that is you could say, let's try to apply more mindful empathy and like intentional and be like, let's try to, if we can, to use that as a tool to get us to write better software that just meets everyone's needs and to deploy it and manage it in a way that meets the application developers' needs as well, while maintaining the specializations. Because specializations are also efficient. It's, you know, almost like trivially provable that it's like, well, what if you take that idea of DevOps 
n steps further and you say, well, actually, everyone should be an expert in front-end development and back-end development and infrastructure and talking to customers and accessibility. And you just you just keep listing things until it's like, well, there's just actually not enough time to be an expert in all of those. Like the thing that like expert means that you're focusing on one thing to the exclusion of others. You can't be an expert in absolutely everything or else you're just, you know, you're generalist. Great. But like, that's not the same thing as an expert. I think that it's less of a separation of expertise and knowledge. There's a great quote. There's a philosopher, Mario Bruhe, and Boon, no, Boon, Boonhe. I think I'm pronouncing it. It's B-U-N-G-E, and he was Argentinian. So I apologize for completely botching his name. It's but okay. he wrote My a book, Argentinian he, coworkers he, can tell me what it is. <laughs> he wrote on uh, techno-ethics, so the ethics of being a technology creator, and he has this great and and he has a, a paper on tech or towards techno ethics. And it it's kind of talking about this a little bit, is that what ends up happening is that we are separating ourselves from responsibility. And so he has a quote, the separation of responsibilities is just a retreat from total responsibility, hence a cloak for wrongdoing. And huh. so when we when we say that's not my job. What we're doing is saying, I don't have to consider any ethical implications on that. I don't have to think about other people's needs, right? And so it's the, we can all be specialists and like, that's great, right? Like, and this is something I've struggled with because like I, the stuff that I am interested in applies, like it's very, like it crosses across languages, like it's very language agnostic. So I've actually really struggled to get really deep in any one language because like that's, I'm having to <laughs> have <laughs> conversations with people in all sorts of different communities, whether or not that's talking about legacy code or the empathy side. And so then feeling like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't have value or I don't know what I'm talking about or I don't know what I'm doing. Right. But it's like, no, it's like you have this expertise, but you're still taking responsibility for the whole product. Right. Or you're still taking responsibility for all of the different connection points. Another thing I think that is relevant to that is Conway's law. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that too, like that talks about communication infrastructure. And so like thinking about, so basically it's the, the communication architecture that is used to um, uphold a system, any systems that are created as a result of that are going to be mirror images. So if we think about this, like any organization that is creating a piece of software, like their org chart is going to kind of reflect their system architecture. So if you're doing a command and control, strict hierarchy, no one's sharing anything, it's going to be really hard to like move towards microservices <laughs> and observability like, like you want. And so a lot of times, if you want to look at some of these technical issues, you have to look at the organization too. And this is sometimes why we see the phenomenon of why open source systems tend to be a lot healthier you know, at least in terms of code quality. And a lot of that is because there's the motivation there, right? Where people are going to see it. And so it's like, you want to, you want to put it out there and you want to put your best fit forward. So I think there are just a lot of different things at play. It's thinking about things systemically too. And it's thinking about the environment, the culture. And I think it was um, Edward Demings who said, you know, a great individual is, you know, no match for a, a bad system. So you can be the nicest, kindest, trying to be the most empathetic person. And it can be like trying to hold back the tide where it's just 
it's really challenging. So it's not one person doing this. It's it's everybody doing their little part and then hopefully creating that systemic impact where things are shifting by focusing on the small things. And we see this in biology. We see this in software, right? Like by focusing on kind of the small things, then we can create systems that are more resilient. But it's knowing which small things to focus on. <laughs> that's that's the trick. Yeah. Wow. We talked about a lot of stuff. Um, is there anything we're missing? Anything we should talk about that we haven't? I don't know. I mean, like I could geek out about this a lot. I think yeah. the only, <laughs> the other, like the other thing is that using existing metaphors, you know, to kind of learn and level up. So like one of the ways that I talk about, like thinking about an interpersonal relationship and like, you know, applying some active listening skills, it's like, think about it as like TCP IP versus UDP, huh. where like, if you're in a brainstorming session, you don't need to stop and validate. Like, did you understand what I wrote on that post-it note? Because the goal of it is like, no, just here, have all the messages. Here it is. Here's everything. <laughs> but if I'm in a very sensitive conversation, I want to make sure that the packets of information got away all the way through. That's a cool metaphor. Yeah. And it's really fascinating too, because when you look at when you look at some of the like underlying mechanics of communication, there's a model, the Shannon Weaver model of a generalized communication system. And this talks about like how packets of information get from point A to point B, right? And I was really surprised because when I came to software and was learning about this and like how it relates to entropy and compression and some of those things, I was like, this looks really familiar, like this, this model. And it is literally the exact same model that I saw in my marketing and communication classes. Huh. It's not yeah. a derivative. It's not inspired by it. it is literally the exact same model. Oh, wow. And when you look at the mathematics of it and you kind of dive deeper, we can start to use some of these ideas of entropy and compression to help us become better communicators. So an example I give there is if I talk about TDD, I'm pretty sure most of the people on your, you know, are probably going to know what that is. If oh, I yeah, went and yeah. talked to That's my mom, sure, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like the degree of certainty. So like I'm measuring, I'm I'm taking an analysis and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll use the acronym here. And that's the compression. That's the shorter version, right? But if I go and talk to my mom and I'm like, hey, you know, I was learning something about TDD the other day. And she's like, I don't even know what you're talking about, right? <laughs> like, and so recognizing that we sometimes have to make messages longer to be more clear but that that's not dumbing things down. That's just being responsive to the system because there's higher degrees of entropy. So again, it's like we can use the skills that we already have to learn about these different social skills and then figure out how we can apply them effectively too. Yeah. I, I, I never thought about the extent to which deciding how verbose to be in a conversation is actually like sort of coupled to empathy. It's like you're, you're really trying to understand what's going to make the other person in the conversation happiest. And also like if you have an audience, like to get a little bit meta here in, in the earlier days of the podcast, I would try to err more on the side of like explaining a lot more stuff and spending a lot more time making sure like, okay, everybody in the audience is going to get this. But what I realized is that it would take up a lot of the time of, of the episode, which is just like giving background. And so there was a there was a trade-off there that I hadn't considered, which is that the longer you spend giving background, yes, the, the more accessible it becomes to more people, but at the same time, also the less interesting it becomes to everyone because there's just not as much time to fit you know, a, a fuller conversation. So 
I started experimenting intentionally with like not starting off every episode with background and and just being like, okay, let's just start off with diving into a conversation and let's just see if people can pick up on context clues to be able to follow along. And it's worked out surprisingly well. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And I think that that flexible thinking, I mean, that's such a critical element of, of empathy, right? Of being able to take different perspectives and say, okay, how can I adapt my messaging for this group or this group or this group? And so being able to understand, okay, I've got kids who are learning to code for the first time, like what do they need? But then I've got experts who are, you know, have been using this for years. What do they need? And just recognizing that different people are going to have different needs. And rather than trying to create something that's completely general, that is going to serve everyone's needs, instead, like focusing more specifically and kind of coming in and out. And and it's more about reconciling rather than you know, kind of creating a message that's overly general, because to your point, then it's like, what, what are you even saying? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it's like intentionality about, you know, deciding who is the audience that I want to, you know, like who is a set of people? Cause it's not just like the audience is a monolith either. It's not like, Oh, everyone in the audience is the median audience person. And they're all just clones. That's not how people work. It's more like deciding like, you know, here's, here's the things that I'm considering and then actually considering them. And then, deciding, okay, and now since I can't possibly accommodate everyone, uh, you know, at the same time in exactly the same ways, let me make some decisions about like what I want to do communication wise. Yeah. And at the end of the day, that's all it comes down to is decisions. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. Andrea, thank you so much. This is a great conversation. I, I really appreciate your, your coming on the show and talking about all this stuff. Yeah, this is great. I'm really excited to check out Elm too. <laughs> like I was yeah. so, like I said, I was so pleasantly surprised. Even little, th- like you can just tell there's a lot of care. Like when I was looking through the documentation, like just here, try this. Like having a clickable thing in there, I've never seen that before. And as somebody who was new, I was like, this is really empowering. It's it great. It forced yeah. me to stop <laughs> and like really think through things rather than just like skimming over everything. So it's like, oh, I'm <laughs> so excited to see how this community grows. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, well thanks. And I'll, I'll, I'll pass that along. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I guess we'll wrap up there. Sounds good. Thanks again.